There is no injustice with God. There is no injustice with God. That has to be your assumption if you're going to wrestle with the question that Paul's going to put before us in Romans chapter 9, which is the question of election. As I mentioned a moment ago, the question, why some and not others? Why do some believe? And others don't. Since salvation is by grace alone, meaning it is by God's choice alone, how come God has only chosen some? Now, the way I said it there at the end is not quite right, although it also is, and here's the problem. Your brain is going to run into a wall this morning. And that wall is the mystery of God's will, wherein God wants something but doesn't get something, and he knows why, but he's not going to tell you why, and you just have to trust him. And that's going to be hard, because that's the thing that the flesh of man least wants to do. Even the Christian, your flesh, doesn't want to trust God. You want to know. You want to understand. You want to be in control. And the question of election is the assertion of God, nope, you don't get to be in control. I'm in control, and that means I'm saving you. So rather than complaining that you don't get to understand, how about you rejoice that you get to believe? Now, the other thing about Romans 9 I'm going to say before we get in is that this has got to be, this in chapter 10 too, some of the most intellectually demanding chapters in the Bible. So if you're not a fan of this verse-by-verse thing we've been doing today, it's just going to really just drive you nuts, okay? Because <laughs> Paul gets, he gets deep. So I need you to put your thinking cap on to follow me today. And, and again, pull out your pew Bible that's in front of you and find page 945, because it will help you. If you're struggling with the intellectual challenge of things that I say, or even, and I'll confess it, that I sometimes go too fast, it will help you to see the verses written on the page and to follow along. You'll be able to latch on to that even when I'm moving on too quick. And if you'll grab one of those pens in the pew, I hope they got put in this week. I know some people have been borrowing them, which is great. Uh, But if you'll grab one of those pens in the pew and some of that paper and take a note here and there, even if I travel on and say something else, so you're like, where'd he go? The note that you took is more valuable than whatever else I just said. Because that note that you took is going to go home with you. And even if then you don't get everything that Romans 9 says, which is actually kind of the point, that's okay. You took something from the Word of God, you put it in your head and in your heart, and maybe later this week it'll come out of your mouth. And that's what it means to be inhabited by the Holy Spirit of God. So as we dig into this very complex argument that Paul is making to Jewish Christians about their Judaism and its connection to the Old Testament promises of God, don't worry if you don't get all of it. Just try to get a piece here and there as we go through, because there's, there's marvelous stuff here. Now, we're not going to go verse by verse through the whole thing. 
We're going to start at verse 6 this morning. Verse 6, where it says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Why would he say that? Why is Paul insisting that you believe the word of God hasn't failed? It's because if you look at it from a certain human perspective, it has. He said to Abraham, I will bless the whole world through your offspring. And now the Jewish people who are the descendants of Abraham do not believe in the salvation that was sent to them in their King Jesus Christ. They do not believe. They have rejected the salvation. They have set themselves outside of the very promises of God. It looks like the promise didn't work. And Paul's entire point here in chapter 9 is to say, no, 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 you're misreading that. You're not understanding. The promise absolutely worked, but you must understand that the promise is not about your bloodline. And so as he said way back in chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, Judaism is not about your bloodline. A true Jew is not one who is descended from Abraham, but one who has the faith of Abraham. And this is why both Jew and Gentile are invited and called to believe in Jesus Christ as the Savior. And so again, the word of God has not failed for, same idea, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Israel is the other name of Jacob. We heard that reading about Jacob a few moments ago. He gets named Israel, which means God fights for you. He gets named that instead of his other name, Jacob, deceiver. When he has a wrestling match with God at the Jabbok River near the end of his life, or at least closer to the end of his life than his beginning, and God insists to him, I've chosen you. I am with you. And a cool part of the story, all the way up to this point in Jacob's life, he more or less hasn't believed that. He's made an oath here and there to God, but he's also always trying to finagle everything to work it out for himself. And he's about to go meet his brother Esau, who's very likely going to kill him, or that's, that's what he thinks is going to happen due to the conflict that began with that bowl of soup that you heard read about. He, he, he thinks he's going to kill him. Jacob's coming with 400 armed men to meet you know, Israel, uh, Jacob, and his, his wives. And he's got some men, but not 400 armed men. In any case, he thinks he's going to escape somehow. He, he tries to do this little thing where he goes to the other side of the river so that Esau can't find him. And he runs into God all by himself in the middle of the night. And they, and they fight all night long. The end of the story again is God says, I'm for you. I'm not against you. I'm for you. And the next day, indeed, God is with Jacob as he meets his brother and they have a peaceful reconciliation. Okay, I got a little distracted there just on the word Israel. Israel then, this guy Jacob, he has 12 sons. Do you remember this? Yeah, Judah, Reuben, Simeon, Issachar, Joseph, Benjamin, all, all those guys. And from them come the 12 tribes that down in Egypt will become the hundreds of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people that are the nation of Israel, uh, descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose name is Israel. Now, Paul says here again, though, not all Israel is Israel. What does he mean? He means that just because he got the bloodline doesn't make you a believer. It's that simple. It's that simple. 
So not everyone who's descended from Jacob is necessarily what it's about. It's those who have the promises that Jacob did finally believe by the end of his life, who are the true Israel. Verse 7. No, I'm sorry. We're going to skip to verse 8. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Yeah? I think I've said that idea enough that that should be pretty clear right off the front there, right? It's not those descended by blood, whether they be from Judah or from David or whoever, but it is those who receive the promises. Now, the one exception to this would be Jesus himself. The whole point of these promises being to a bloodline are because they are going to go down to the man, Jesus Christ, who will believe these promises and keep all of the covenantal law that's required in order to demonstrate his perfect righteousness before the Father, in order to become the sacrifice worthy to be slain for all of us, for you and me. But then again, let's repeat it. This means it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of promise who are counted as offspring. Let's skip to verse 13. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now to prove his point, he points out that Esau is also a son of Isaac. And Esau didn't get any promises. Esau is a son of the flesh. He's descended from Abraham. He's a Hebrew. But he's not because he rejected the promises. Now, as we go forward in this, it's kind of important to know we don't know how Esau ended his life. We might see Esau in paradise. That's not really the point here. The point is that in history, as God is selecting how he's going to save, he says, from you, and then, well, this other one, he didn't get it. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And this was decided before they were even born while they were still in the womb. Now, this is what's going to bring up that question, though. Doesn't that make God unjust? Okay, I'm going to tangent here for a second, because this is the question. It's going to be behind a lot of what else I say today. Doesn't it mean that God chose to damn Esau? Doesn't it mean that God chose to reject Esau? Now, I said this isn't about salvation for Jacob and Esau, but it will be about salvation as we ask this question going forward. Why some, not others? If it's about God promising, if it's about God choosing, and that continues down to this day, so that you must know that you are saved because God has chosen you, and yet you see that there are others who are not saved, well, doesn't that mean that God didn't choose them? And if you want to put the names to the theologies, this is the big fight between Lutherans and Calvinists, especially, but then also between Calvinists and Arminians, which basically just means everyone who's not a Lutheran or a Catholic or a Calvinist. And in one way, it's also very much at the heart of the fight between Luther and Rome. How are you saved? And you say, by grace, through faith. Okay, good. What does that mean? Because to be saved by grace means God chose you and you had no choice in the matter. But wait, if he chose me and I had no choice in the matter, what about those who don't believe? Did he not choose them? And here's the thing. The Bible says, no, no, no. The call has gone out to all. 
But they have rejected him. They have resisted him. They have chosen not to believe in him. Okay, well, that starts to make sense. So you're saying that the ones who are damned are damned because of their own free will. Yep. But then doesn't that mean there's something in me that chose God? Nope. And can you see your head? Is it starting to to bang yet? Okay. This is a mystery here. God chooses to save. Man is the source of his own damnation. Well, then how come I got saved? Because God chose you. But doesn't that mean then that there's something different in me? Nope. And again, it, well, it runs into a problem. It runs into a problem that's going to bang on your head. Now, rather than go around and around in a circle, which I could keep doing, we're going to tangent out of the text and look at a couple of the key verses that are going to make this very, very obvious. Okay? So, uh, let's look at, keep your finger in Romans, okay? We're going to look at Ezekiel 18.23. I know it's kind of hard to find. I'll tell you the page number when I get there. Ezekiel 18.23. This is really key for understanding God's will. It's going to be page 705. 705. Where? God asks the question. Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? So God says, I don't want anyone to go to hell. I don't have any pleasure from destroying the wicked. I would much rather that they all believe. Now he's going to say a very similar thing in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. It's all the way toward the end of the book now. I'll tell you the page when we get there. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. This is going to be on page 991. We'll start at verse 3, where Paul says, This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Verse 4, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So first assertion. Both of those verses, God desires all people, everyone, to be saved. That's not all the Bible says. Let's look at 2 Peter 2, verse 9. Just a couple pages to your right will be 2 Peter. Past Hebrews. You're going to be on page, page 1019 is where the verse is going to show up. Where it says that God, the Lord, knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So the God who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth also knows how to keep the unbelievers stuck in unbelief until the day he goes to hell. How do you hold that together? And the answer is, you don't. God does. God knows the mystery of why the unbeliever is going to remain the unbeliever. And chapter 9 in Romans, if you go back there, going to dig into this again. Coming out of Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And it doesn't mean necessarily that he hated Esau personally, with some sort of malicious spite. 
But it does mean that, as the story goes, Esau's rejection of his birthright, his hardening of his own heart, is something that God was very well aware of and just decided to be okay with. For the sake of saving you, by the way. It's always about saving those who are saved, the elect or the remnant, as we'll get to. All right, so pushing ahead here. Back in Romans chapter 9, we looked at verse 13, continuing on with verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part, right? If we see that God is saving some, not others, isn't that not fair? That's the question. And do you remember how I began this morning? I said, there is no injustice with God. You must assume this. God is God. He is righteous. He is good. There is no injustice. Now he asks, though, doesn't it seem like there's injustice? Yeah? What shall we say about it? And he says again, by no means. For he says, verse 15, to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. What that means is that if God decides to save some and not others as it works out, then that's the way it is, and that's completely righteous. And any complaint on your part that that's not righteous is just your own unrighteousness. Because God's righteous by definition. Whatever he decides to do is righteous. And our thinking that it isn't is the proof of our sin. Now, again, the big question here is, the big problem is, we know God desires to save all because he's good and he's merciful, and yet he is not going to save all. And so we say, why? That's not fair. And he says, because I'm God and I'm saving you. And that does just have to be enough at the end of the day, that he will have mercy on whom he will have mercy, and that means you. And that doesn't mean that he doesn't want to have mercy on the one who is unbelieving. Remember, the unbeliever, he makes his own bed. That's why it's just. He digs his own grave. It is his sin that is rightly and justly punished. Your sin has been taken into Jesus Christ along with all the sins of the world, including that sin of the unbeliever. The problem is the unbeliever won't believe it. He will not. And that's on him. The most amazing thing in this, then, is if you can see it, that God has the ability to want something and not have it. And that's where our, our flesh really struggles. Because, you know, when I want something, I want something. If I was almighty and I wanted something, I'd get it. God's almighty and he wants to save all and he doesn't get it. Now, why? He doesn't exactly tell us why. Other than that, he knows what he's doing. And it's about trusting that he knows what he's doing more than you do. Yeah. So then, verse 16, it depends not on human will or an exertion, but on God who has mercy. And this is really all about salvation by grace. That's the whole point. It's just what happens when you believe that and start to think about it. And then look at the Old Testament. You start finding this challenging idea showing up. Verse 18, we'll just skip down to verse 18. So then he, that's God, has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now we could spend a ton of time just on that, but let's just look at mission for a moment. The idea of mission. You've heard me perhaps in the past say how mission has been abused as an idea in the last hundred years. 
And here is one of the ways. We think, oh, if we just go out and try hard and do it right, we'll get more people to be saved. Well, not if God has decided to harden them. When you go out with God's word, it has one of two effects. It softens the heart and brings them to faith. Or if it doesn't soften the heart, there's no neutral. There's no, it's just kind of the same. The alternative is that it hardens the heart and it makes them more damned than they were before. I'm not saying we shouldn't do mission and tell people about Jesus. I'm saying we shouldn't assume we can control the ends. Because it might just be that we live in a season of drought when it comes to belief. These seasons do come and go. St. Paul tells Timothy, preach the word in season and out of season. That is, when they are believing and when they are not believing. Because sometimes God decides to harden a people for their own good, maybe, maybe. He can harden you until you break in a brittle lump on the ground and then you believe. But sometimes he also hardens so as to bring others to faith, which is the point Paul's making here in Romans 9. That the Jews were hardened so that you could believe. That's not fair. Yeah, no, you're back on that trying to judge God thing. Can't go there. God knows exactly what he's doing. So when he hardens whomever he wills, it's for good. It is totally just. And it's also part of him choosing to save you. Verse 19. You will say to me, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Right? That's not fair. What are the, those poor people that have been hardened by God, like Pharaoh, what's he going to do against God? But, verse 20, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will that which is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? I mean, it's, the metaphor is pretty clear. A potter has a lump of clay. He can do whatever he wants with it. You're the lump of clay. God's the potter. If he decides to make some vessels that he's going to throw into the fire and burn them, how are you going to stand there as the vessel that's made honorable and glorious and say, well, that was wrong of him? You're just a vessel. He's the God who did it. Huh? Doesn't he have that right? But you can feel in your heart, you're like, no, no, he shouldn't, right? You can feel that. I can feel it. I know what it feels like. That's your flesh, though, right? That's your desire to be God. We all have it. We've all inherited it. What we want to see here is how that's the thing he's saving us from. And so rejecting this idea is to reject the salvation itself, really. Now the word has come to you today with a challenge to your understanding. And the question is, will it soften you or will it harden you? Will you say, ah, I refuse to believe it? Or, or will you say, well, I bow before the mystery of Jesus. I don't get it. I don't even like it, but, but he's Jesus. I'm not. So he must know what he's doing. This is where we want to be, right? Where we just, we just fall down before his mystery, trusting in him to be the king. Now, there is some answer here in verse 22 for the sake of the conscience, and it especially helps you deal with a classic argument against Christianity from those especially internet atheists who think they're oh so clever. It's called the problem of evil. And we've been wrestling with this a little bit here. If God is an almighty and good God, then why is there evil at all? And if he has the power to save all, why has he not saved all? 
So it sure looks like he's either not good or not almighty. See, silly Christian, how confusing and dumb your religion is. Now, the problem with the problem of evil is it sort of assumes that I'm not the evil and that God doesn't want to have mercy on me. So there's kind of two leaps there. The reason that God has not destroyed all the evil, which a good God would, is because you're evil and yet he loves you. And so in order to save you from yourself, he has endured your evil. He has allowed your evil to continue on generation after generation so that he might enter into the midst of it as Jesus, take it all into himself and bury it in his own grave. Coming forth with the promise that your evil has now been taken care of. There is no condemnation for you who are in Jesus Christ, as we said uh, last week, yes? And so, again, evil is something that God is putting up with, but he does intend to completely destroy it. He has destroyed it in Jesus for you. That's what verse 22 is going to say. Same kind of idea. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, that is, desiring to punish evil, he plans to, he's going to punish evil, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. He puts up with unbelievers. He puts up with the evil who will never repent in order to, three, make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. That is in order to save you as an act of mercy, which you, he has prepared beforehand for glory. He says it's you, even us. Whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. God has desired to put up with our evil in order to reach into that evil and save you, whom it's more than he's just saving you. He has chosen to glorify you from before you fell into the evil. That's an amazing thing. The mystery really gets pushed to its end here. So the one who is hardened is ordained to be hardened, not from eternity. From eternity, he was created to be saved, but he has chosen not to be saved. And so he will be hardened unto his damnation. But for you who are saved by faith, you were created from eternity to be saved in grace, to be glorified forever. And so that stays good and true. You're not merely saved in time, you're saved eternally and as a predestined reality. Christians don't talk about destiny very much. Destiny and fate, when you talk about it, tends to get stuck on things like being famous and being rich and slaying the hydra. It's not really about that, but the Bible definitely does have destiny in it, predestination in it. You were born to saved from sin, death, and the devil, so that you will rise from the dead on the last day when you see Jesus return and live forever in a glorious life of purpose that was made specifically for you as a member of us. That's so good. That's so good. Yes? Even us who he has called not only from the Jew, but also from the Greek, from the Gentile. This is not a matter of bloodline. It's a matter of promise. Verse 22. No, we got that one already. Verse 25. We skipped that. Let's go to verse 30. What shall we say then? And this question, often when Paul asks that question, what shall we say? The next thing he says is wrong. And he's like, no, don't say that. 
This one doesn't work that way. Now he's saying, yep, this is what we shall say. All right? So here's, what we, here's the conclusion of the map, at least for this week. That Gentiles, that's non-Jews, that's most of you, who did not pursue righteousness. That is, our history as a people, we weren't trying to keep the covenant of God. We're from ancestors who did all sorts of pagan and wicked things. We did not pursue salvation through the, the temple at Jerusalem. Yet we got it anyway. We've attained it. That is a righteousness that is by faith. Trying to earn our way, nothing happened. But we were given nonetheless trust in Jesus. He is risen. Hallelujah. But that Israel, meaning the Jewish people of old, today some as well, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. That so far as and whenever the Jewish people decided that they would earn their status with God by keeping the law, they didn't make it. Why? Verse 32, because they did not pursue it by faith, but is if it were based on works. Now, it's pretty important right there to recognize not only Jews can make this mistake. There are Christian churches out there. You can go sit in one. They'll tell you how you got to earn your own salvation. Got to pray to Mary. No fish on Fridays. Better give your heart to Jesus again this week. Did you really do it the first time? There are those who will preach that kind of self-righteousness as if it's Christianity. So Paul is not anti-Semitic here. This isn't just about the Jews. It's about legalism. We talked about that recently as well, right? Legalism, thinking that religion is about what you do. What shall we say then? That those who didn't do anything got saved, and those who thought they would do something found themselves outside. That's what we shall say. Does that mean that those who didn't do anything that got saved now get to be evil? By no means. You already talked about that in Romans 6. We've been there. We've done that. But what you want to know again is that the word of God has not failed to Jew or Gentile. The promise is still good for all. It's there. But those who disbelieve, here's what happens. The rest of that verse, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That's Jesus. They stumbled over Jesus. And this is where no matter how you reckon with this election doctrine, and, and there is an orthodox teaching, I believe I've given it to you today. I believe the Calvinist perspective is not orthodox. It's, it's wrong. It's unbiblical. Nonetheless, the Calvinist believes that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. So believing in Jesus is the point. Not how well you elucidate the philosophical dogma of election. Does that mean that having a wrong dogma of election can lead to trouble? Yeah, I mean, that can happen, right? Having the wrong dogma of election can lead to you believing it's about you again. And I could lay that out as well. But the point here again is all of it has a purpose and it's not for you to intellectually figure it out. The purpose is for you to see that it's about Jesus. He's the stone that you either stand on or get crushed by. Those are the two options. If you get crushed by it, it's all your fault. If you're standing on it, you didn't do it. And that's where we're at. Hallelujah. Huh? Honestly. 
Hallelujah. Now, we're going to go back and look at two more verses here to close, 27 and 29. 27 says, And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, meaning the Jewish people, though the number of the sons of Israel, that is by blood, be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. Verse 29, And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. The point again is that if God weren't doing this, we would all just be destroyed by fire. And no matter how big humanity gets, no matter how big Judaism gets, no matter how big, big visible Christianity gets, salvation is going to be through a remnant, a small portion. The way is narrow and few fight it, find it. Wide is the road that leads to destruction. You're on the narrow path. You have to be because you're baptized into Jesus and hearing me tell you about it again. Huh? So rather than be upset about being the remnants, pray for the remnant. And if you're worried about somebody else who doesn't believe because, wow, this would mean bad things for them, well then pray for them, specifically by name. Every day, Jesus, can this person please be saved? And then, Jesus, can my mouth have the courage to speak the words of life to this person? Yeah. All the while knowing that such mission, true mission, which begins in repentance and an awareness of the glory that God has revealed to you in Jesus Christ, all such mission is a matter of his work. And if it were not for him doing it, none of us would be saved at all. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Please rise for prayer.